Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Maybe you want to get a piece of that. Pretty good. I want to talk about sexy teens. I was getting erections. It's a very creepy feeling. I can guarantee that underwear theft will come up again. None of this is relevant. Pokemon, Pokeballs. 750 milliliter bottle of rum. Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. So, there's the saying that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Now, I take exception to that statement in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways I actually think I find most offensive about the statement is the use of the word only. Because with only a tiny, tiny bit of thought, you can figure out that there is more than just a good guy with a gun to be able to stop a bad guy with a gun. Because quite frankly, more often than a good guy with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun, you would actually have another bad guy with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun. It would be two bad guys with guns stopping each other, I think would be actually one of the more common scenarios should you involve bad guys and guns. A secondary premise I would like to put forward is a car. So you have a bad guy with a gun and you hit him with a car and that would pretty much stop him right there. Uh, More reasonably speaking of course, is stronger legislation. And now that's, of course, the thing that the Americans don't want to admit, they don't want to talk about. I live in Japan where the legislation for gun control is incredibly strong. Some of the things in place, honestly, in place, is that if you want a gun, you have to register with the government. You have to go through a psych test and they can do spot checks, which means they can come to your house at any time and ask to see the gun. And so you have to take them to where the gun is. It has to be properly stowed. If it's not put away properly in a gun locker, At any point, they can just take away your license and your gun. Now, the gun violence in Japan is almost strictly limited to the Yakuza organizations who get guns illegally. The problem, or I ask you, the benefit of only Yakuza having guns in Japan is that there are no places for the Yakuza to really practice how to shoot. So Yakuza are actually quite famously not good shots. One of the recommendations is that if a Yakuza pulls a gun on you, run 20 or 30 feet, and it actually will become very unlikely that he'll be able to hit you with a bullet. So the way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to run a slight distance away from him in a swift manner if you have the legislation in place to make sure that he cannot actually practice with the gun. Now, they then come up with the counter-argument that if you have strong legislation, that the bad guys will still be able to get guns. But here's one of the things about black markets is they're not particularly famous for having good prices compared to retail outlets. In fact, the idea or the image of a black market is you're paying an exponentially large amount for something because it's been heavily legislated. This actually prices out a lot of people from buying guns. So yes, bad guys could still get guns, but they'd have to pay a lot more for them and it would be a lot harder for them to actually maintain and use them therefore they would be less 
capable overall of acquiring, maintaining, practicing, and therefore using the guns. So when people come to you and say that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun uh, is with a good guy with a gun, you have now all these arguments to put forth and see how they respond. I'm actually not anti-gun. I think if people are responsible and can take care of guns, I've stated this before, I'm pretty free about everything. If you want to do drugs, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you do it in a responsible way, you should be able to do whatever drugs you want. If you want a gun, as long as you manage it in a responsible way, I think you should be allowed to have a gun. But I do believe that these things need to have a lot of rules in place, which then brings us back to legislation. Because we need things to be clear when you are and aren't allowed to use them. Uh, and the punishments should be quite severe for breaking the laws. Canada recently legalized marijuana, and they had to make sure that everyone knew. Like, you can do it at home responsibly, but you can't drive under the influence. That's a bad thing. A lot of people would say, well, that's self-evident, but it's actually not until it's actually written into the rules and legislation in the country. Here's a mini story back with my adventures uh, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So because I've been a bit of a fan, I've been using a lot of Bitcoin to purchase products and stuff online. I really like the sort of peer-to-peer nature of it, sending money directly to people and getting money directly back without having to use a credit card or have some company in the way. So I've liked that. So I was looking more into how to mine Bitcoin, and this is either helping create the blockchain or you are verifying transactions. So I got a desktop Bitcoin miner that you just leave on when your computer is running. So I decided I would leave it to leave it on to run all the time and see how much money I could make. Because I have just a regular computer. It has one GPU and one CPU. So it has one graphics card in it. If you want to make a lot of money, you have to put in a bunch of graphics cards and have lots of power. That sort of inherently makes sense. Uh, I didn't have that. I just wanted to see how much the average user with the average computer could actually get if they just put one of these things on and let it run constantly. In a month, I made about a thousand yen in Bitcoin. That's like 10 bucks. That's pretty good. And that was just for leaving my computer on. And I was like, man, that's, you know, a hundred bucks a year. Again, I'm not going to get rich off it. It's another meal or something every month that I'm basically getting for free just by leaving my computer on. But of course, computers being left on, it's not just doing nothing. It's actually using and consuming electricity. So of course, I had to then make the second calculation. How much has my electricity bill changed since I have left my computer on to mine Bitcoin all the time? Well, the result was it cost me 2,000 yen in electricity to mine 1,000 yen of Bitcoin. So, of course, the logical conclusion was I took the Bitcoin miner off my computer. If you can get a more energy efficient way or use that electricity more efficiently, it should be worthwhile. But for me, as just a regular user, uh, just leaving his computer on, it was not worth the money. It might be one of those things where you just have it run in the background when you have the computer on and then turn it off when you're not using it. But if you leave your computer on all the time and mine Bitcoin, it goes into sleep mode, but it still has to use more electricity because it's still doing processing. If it's still doing processing, it's still using the electricity in such a way that it's going to cost you money. So you have to make sure that you don't spend more than you get. But it was a valuable thing to learn that it's costing me more in electricity than it was in actual Bitcoin creation or reception or whatever the actual appropriate word would be. Here's a Quora question. Why don't we make our soldiers look scary or creepy? Wouldn't that be a good psychological warfare? And in a very video game kind of way, this is a good idea. You want to make your presence as intimidating as possible. You want to terrify the enemy. Uh, But 
this isn't a video game. This is real life. And one of the problems soldiers and armies have is that a lot of times when they go into another country, which is where a lot of wars happen, what you're actually trying to do overall, and this is a phrase you may have heard before, is win hearts and minds. And that is not an easy thing to do if you look terrifying. When you think of a civilian population, to actually win a war, you have to get the civilian population over to your side and then making whatever the insurgency or the rebel group or the invading country or whoever have the people support you and turn against them. That is actually how you're going to win a war. If you win a war, but you don't, haven't won over the civilian population, what you then have to do is keep your military presence in that country, keep them there so that they can maintain order, but actually it's going to be imposing your will on them, and it's going to go on for years and years and years and years. Making your soldiers terrifying monsters isn't going to achieve that goal. One of the other things you should think about is if you go back and look at propaganda from a country when talking about an active opponent is that they always try to make them look like scary monsters. Why is that? If you go look at Japanese propaganda from the world from World War II, you could look at the way they make the American soldiers. They have them coming in and attacking and raping women and children and just killing everyone they see. If you look at the 1940s propaganda from America about the Japanese soldiers, they make them look as evil as possible. They make, kind of make them look like rats and monsters. Why do they do this? Because Part of the psychological warfare is to actually inhumanize your enemy so it actually makes it easier for you to hate and kill them. And that's not something that goes away. So if the military actually wants to be successful, they can't actually have their soldiers appear like they are in propaganda. Again, because you won't ever end up working towards some sort of peaceful resolution which is actually the goal of war. Probably if you're playing Call of Duty, the goal of war to you is actually just to kill all your enemies. That's actually called genocide. And they don't follow the Geneva Convention rules when making engagements in most video games. So yes, if you are comic book or video game thinking, yes, it is a great idea because it looks cool. It looks kind of awesome. But in the real world, there are far more things you need to take into account to before you actually start making your soldiers look like monsters. There is face mask, a wrap that goes around like in a bandana and on it has like the lower jaw skull thing. I actually think that came from Call of Duty. A soldier, in a, an American soldier was actually caught with those one of those on while out in the field and he was reprimanded quite severely because it falls into the same trope. Making himself look terrifying inhumanizes the American soldiers in general. And that's the kind of image that the army they're fighting against would use to say, look, this is what these kind of people are. They're not humans. They're monsters. Uh, they don't, they're not here to save you. They're here to kill you. I mean, anyone here to protect you isn't going to look like that. So that's something to keep in mind. This, I'm assuming this question actually was written by a younger person because that's the only way that psychology would be in play. But when you start thinking about it, logically, you actually can see there's a lot of flaws in this mode of thought. Here's a Quora question again. Do we exist? This is a surprisingly simple thing to answer. And the answer is, I do, but you don't. Okay, and so for a more lengthy answer to a Quora question, I've been giving some parenting advice in the last couple of episodes and people have actually seemed to have responded to it really well. So maybe I should just start, uh, abandon this format and just start a parenting podcast. That would be awful. But... It seems like the thing that resonated with people the, the last time I said in the last podcast was basically don't be a shithead, which is actually how 
I think as sort of a base philosophy is a really good way to live your life. I've had a couple of people actually comment on that. Like when dealing with your kids, don't be a shithead. Well, here's a question. I purposely broke my daughter's tablet after I caught her playing games she was forbidden to play. Was this an overreaction? Well, if you have to ask, was it an overreaction? You are already in the area of, yes, it probably was. If I have, if I've done something and I stop and go, was that an overreaction? Actually, yes, it probably was because if it wasn't, I wouldn't even be in the space to ask that question. So the asker of this question already knows they've kind of crossed a line. They're just trying to figure out how much and why and maybe what they should do in the future. Smashing stuff was a really big thing on the internet. You had people like driving over Xboxes on the internet and taking a video of it when their kids were doing too much. Uh, you had people smashing phones. You had uh, one of the more famous one was a father who like shot a computer. All those fall under a single category of slightly psychopathic. Not even slightly, in some cases, really psychopathic. And what it actually demonstrates that you as an adult have no self-control, which is really a trait you're probably, as a parent, trying to imbue in your children. You want them to have self-control. You can't go around freaking out all the time. And if you want to get this sort of playing on a psychological level, what you do is you take the tablet away you make a new lock sequence of some sort and you just put it somewhere where the child can see it because seeing it, having it available, but not being able to use it is way more painful than when you've smashed it because now it's just gone. Uh, it's not like they could have the opportunity to use it in the future. There is no hope there. You've dashed their hopes. But if it's still sitting there in the corner and they just see it every day, if you really want to hurt someone, that's how you hurt them. You don't block someone on the internet. You just don't answer their messages. That is a far, far more vindictive way to treat another human being. But the actual real important point of this story and what I think about it is the daughter now can just write you off as an unreasonable person. And she can use that as a justification to not speak to you or not listen to you in the future. Because now she has proof, she has actual proof that you do not behave in a rational and sensible manner. So she does not have to take your opinion or your ideas into account when making her own decisions. And you've actually provided her with this. This is one of the things I learned about swearing very late in life was that if you are in an argument and you swear at the other person, you've actually just given them a reason that they can now dismiss you. And so any sort of freak out in your parenting gives your child a reason that, that they can now dismiss you and your opinion and your authority because anyone who is an actual authority in my life isn't going to freak out at me. You have to sit down and talk to them. So the way this should have been handled, again, how I would have handled it myself, is I would have taken the tablet away and locked it so that the child couldn't open it again. A good way, in my thinking, is to give the child some choices. One, we can just put it here and you can never use it again. Or two, you can figure out a way to get it back. I like the idea of me not providing them with answers. You have to think of something you can do to get this back. That puts the onus on them to do the work and take responsibility for their actions. But if they actually do come up with something smart, you have to uphold your end of the agreement and actually give them back the tablet. A lot of people have sort of the similar feeling about violent video games. And I am of the case where if my son, who's the older one, so he's more likely to get into violent video games first, can explain to me why it's acceptable for him to play violent video games and what the difference is between violence in real life and violence in the virtual world. If he can make that differentiation and make that argument in a solid way, I don't care how old he is. When he's able to be cognizant enough to actually make that argument in a solid and convincing way, I think he should be allowed to play video games because mental capacity is more important than age. 
I have met adults in their 20s and 30s who could not make that argument. And I believe that they should not be allowed to play video games. Where if you had an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old who could tell you, yes, killing someone in a video game, no one actually gets hurt. It provides you with a shot of dopamine. It's exciting, but it's not real life. Hurting someone in real life, there are real consequences. And that other person has to live with the results of that for the rest of their life, as do I. Then that's someone who is clearly emotionally mature and they can play whatever they want. Now we've clearly turned this into a parenting advice show. If you have kids and you have any questions, please yeah, hit me up. I will be happy to give you some Velocity Podcast advice. Uh, the best place for mommy information. Weirdly, uh, the last one, I think I put parenting in the hashtags and some mommy group actually followed me. So I'm waiting to see if that plays out into something, if they actually start sending questions or having discussion or getting really offended by the things I say, because I don't see mommy groups as the target demographic, but it would be a really interesting group to get sort of into that was unintentionally sexual. So I walk to the judo club every week. It takes about 15, sometimes 20 or 30 minutes, depending on how enthused we are about walking i walk with a friend who's also joined judo about a year ago so uh, we kind of just do it together it's really fun i think he enjoys the live version of the podcast basically every week he asks me a question or something and i just talk for the full 10 15 minutes we're walking which you know is great if he enjoys it but sometimes i feel like i talk too much about whatever but a couple weeks ago when we were walking home he actually asked me a really interesting question and it brought together a couple of ideas i'd been thinking about stuff I'd written down. He said, if you were a dictator, what would be your first five changes? A complete takeover. So I am now in full control of the planet and all my policies will be enacted as I intend them to be. The first thing I would do is environmental protection. And that's not because I'm a particular environmentalist. I really like efficiency. So when a more efficient system comes along, I think we should adopt it. So solar power is more efficient than gasoline. So I think we should be adopting solar power as much as possible. If a more efficient system comes along, that something is more efficient than solar power, I think we should be using that. I'm actually not against nuclear power I just would like more safety concerns to be brought into effect because when an accident, when something goes wrong with nuclear power, that is a big issue. Where if something goes wrong with solar power, I think you just have to like replace some panels. So to me, those safeguards actually are also very appealing. But more importantly, if I am the ruler of the world, I don't want to be the ruler of a wasteland. So all these movies where people want to destroy the whole planet or kill off everyone or genocide and stuff, those inherently don't make sense to me because why would you want to be the ruler of nothing? The Umbrella Corporation to me is one of the most confusing things because a corporation by its very nature is trying to sell to a customer base. Uh, but what they've done is created a zombie virus that's killed off pretty much their whole customer base. So they as a corporation have failed through their own success. So I don't want to live that. I don't want to live in a post-apocalyptic world. I don't want to live in a horrible world. I actually think this world is pretty good and we could make improvements on it and we'd be in really good shape. I would be pushing for more environmentally conscious industries. But you, let's say you have coal mining, which was a big issue in the last election. Coal miners, what's going to happen to them? Because clearly I would be closing down coal mines. But I think people need jobs too. And actually to get people on board with environmental initiatives, you actually should be using the people you're going to put out of work. So if you take the coal miners, you take, let's say, just a thousand people who are all working in a coal mine. And you say, we're not going to fire you. We're going to shut down this coal mine. And they go, oh, no, we're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose our livelihoods. Well, I think it should be the government's responsibility to find them a new livelihood. But that could be 
maintenance of the new solar panel station that's going to be put in the same area because it clearly has to be in the same area because that area is going to need a new source of energy because you've just shut down the coal mine. I know it's not that simple, but this is conceptually what I would want to do. So you take the coal miners, you say, we're going to give you some retraining. You're going to be the guys who maintain solar panels. And they have a choice. They don't have to accept this new job. But I can't see anyone who's worked in a mine all day for like 10 years saying, no, I would really hate to be above ground all day. I would really hate to like clean or rewire or take care of solar panels as opposed to staying down in a place where my lungs get full of ash all the time. Clearly that could happen. So I don't want to force people into a new position, but if I'm offering you a job in place of the one you're going to lose, I think it's very difficult for you to complain that you're losing your job. If you want to go off to another industry, you want to go off to try something else, that would be your choice. That would be your freedom. But I think when you are killing an industry off, the core responsibility of the government should be to find those people a new place in the new industries in the new world. It's the same kind of thing with whaling in Japan. Whaling in Japan is non-sustainable. There aren't enough people who actually eat whale regularly. There is less interest with each passing generation in eating whale. And the world is just against it at this point. Japan should just give up on whaling. But then what do you do with these people who they are whalers, their fathers were whalers, it goes back in their history, and they don't know anything else? Well, they have a skill set. They know how to sail boats. They know how to follow whales. So I actually was thinking the natural transition for them as a industry, as a group, would be to shift them towards actual care and maintenance of the environment in the water. So they could follow the whales around and make sure they're protected. They could do the actual studying. Whaling fleets in Japan claim that they're studying whales. So they kill a whale, they bring it up on, and they do scientific experiments on it to check on the whale population and how it's going. Oh, the meat's left over, we'll just sell it. That's a common refrain, and it does sound like a crock. But it does show that there is an opportunity there to shift these people into a new thing, actual research, actual science, actual jobs where they get to live the life they've already lived, but apply those skills to something new. And I actually believe that most people have some sort of skill set, and that skill set can be trained and or retrained. Uh, it just has to be something related. Now that's only two or three, because I mean, each thing has multiple parts to it, but this shows you that it's actually kind of a whole system. Uh, the next one is actually, I do believe capitalism is generally effective. I don't think capitalism works for things like healthcare. I think that should be guaranteed and managed by the government itself. But of course, I come from a country with universal healthcare. I moved to another country with universal healthcare. I've known it my whole life and I've actually felt a certain amount of security because it exists. So I am very pro universal healthcare. All the stories I hear about Americans losing all their money, all their houses, pre-existing conditions, uh, overpricing at hospitals and stuff, that all seems to be something that could have been easily regulated because every single human being on the planet at some point is going to need healthcare. You are going to get sick. It doesn't matter how well you take care of yourself. Age catches up with you. You will get sick. You are going to catch a disease. You're going to have something break down in your body. So that care needs to be in place for everyone. That's just a general security thing. This takes us to big companies and capitalism. I actually believe in capitalism, but I actually think capitalism gets abused, as every system does. So if you look at the big telecom companies or the cable companies in America, you basically have two or three 
And those two or three operate like on the left side of the country and the right side of the country. And so what you end up with is a virtual monopoly because they are agreeing on prices. They're agreeing on the areas they will work in and they try to shut out anyone else. I have this theory that when a company gets so big, it needs to be broken up. But how do you know when to break it up? That's actually the question. So I think a company should be broken up when it starts to abuse its customer base. So the cable companies in America, they charge more and more, they provide poor service, they abuse their customers because they know their customers don't really have alternatives for the most part. So when a company behaves that way, they have a choice. They can either roll back to provide good service or you can fire the whole executive board, replace them and create multiple smaller companies that will now be actually competing for customers in the in those regions. And the reason companies abuse their customers is because they believe they're untouchable. So what you need to do is make these executives, make these companies touchable. And the government can do that if they put in again strong legislation towards it. So what you really want what I really want more than anything else is to maintain competition within industries, within these kind of smaller industries and groups. So when I found out that iPhones were being purposely slowed down so that people would feel like they need to buy a new iPhone, I think that's an abuse of the customer base. So at that point, I would have gotten rid of all the executives of that company. You're all fired. And then now this company is going to be broken up. You're going to be Apple and Pear. And now you're competing for those customers again. You can try to make the product as good as it used to be. You can try to make a product that lasts. Or your new company, Pear, might take over. There is... A lot of complications to this as a proposal because it would have to be like who gets what technology and things like that. Do you start with the same base technology and you both kind of build up from your own way? It would have to be a fair starting position. But I think with new people in place and the risk of losing their job in the future, I think that position would be taken more seriously. But I think... The idea that an executive could lose his job because his company is abusing customers would be enough of a motivation for them to maintain the highest level of customer service they can. So that gets us to, I think, three or four. Now, this as a set of philosophies clearly has not been completed. This should be a manifesto that's like a full 100 or 200 pages to actually be explained piece by piece. But you can see the basic philosophy I have is try to keep things as fair as possible, try to make sure people are working towards something and try to make sure that that something is an improvement of the world at large. If you can do that, even as a dictator, I think it would be a benevolent dictatorship, but even as a dictator, I think you could make significant improvements to the world. And those are the kind of things I think about when I think about governments and societies, because we have a lot of base systems their core ideas are good, but then they grow to a point where they get abused and they just stop working. So in the next presidential election, if you'd like to write in Velocipeter from Velocipodcast, I might get put in play. We could go from this podcast to taking over the world to making the world a better place. So if you'd like to live in the Velocipodcast utopia, you are absolutely welcome. Velocipodcast. Velocipodcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast. Just a very quick note, I 
think I mentioned this before, but just to make sure, if you're a big fan of Spotify, uh, the Velosa Podcast is now available on Spotify. Just go on Spotify, search the podcast, search for Velosa Podcast, and you can subscribe through that now, which I'm very happy about. 